over the course of the summer, like the back into the spring, into the summer, um, as far as like topics go here on Sundays, kind of started off with the the doctrine surrounding the Holy Spirit, uh, Father, Son, Spirit, the Holy Spirit, and who is the Holy Spirit? What is what does He do? How and just looking at, at how God has filled us with His Spirit, and then. Uh, equipped us and called us and empowered us to uh, to join him in bringing the kingdom close and uh, within our own congregation, kind of what that looks like, and and so that just kind of sort of just rolled right into an emphasis in August of just kind of going back and and looking at like so God God has a vision for His church and a part of all that is like that's all a big part of that. Um, God has this this beautiful plan for his people and for us to remind ourselves what is that plan and then how do we see that at Living Hope like taking shape. Uh, we're not coming up with a new vision. We're taking the vision that God has given us and recognizing that it looks different with our, with our people than it does with other churches in the area and definitely all around the world. Every church has to kind of figure out um, how does God want us to walk in this vision? And so the first week of the series was looking at our just our identity because anything we do always comes out of who we are. And even would, like if you if you have a misunderstanding of who you are, it's going to alter the things that you do. And so looking like who does the Bible say we are as His people, and that Christ has unified us, uh, that He has taken us. Uh, from being alienated strangers who were dead and made us alive in Christ and made us one with him. And so from that, what do we do? You know, like, so he's made us one. Now what? Well, Jesus taught his disciples and those disciples taught the early church uh, to give themselves over to certain things. to Like in terms of like certain practices and to put their hands to the plow, so to speak. And so... For them, it says in Acts two forty two, it was it was the teaching of the apostles, which for us would be the scriptures. Studying the scriptures, uh, it says they devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to the fellowship, meaning that common life that we share together, and to the breaking of bread, which is both sharing meals together and uh, communion. That Christ is the center of those relationships. And uh, so that's that's what they did. That's what they gave themselves over to. And so for us, that's what we are trying to center everything around. I mean, the whole women's worship gathering is going to center around those same things. Our Sundays, our community groups, everything we try to do uh, is involved in like it's we're giving ourselves to those things. We're devoted ourselves there um, to this morning. I want to look at. So what is what does life look like when we're not together? You know. A lot of this so far has talked about when we're together in worship services or community groups or just groups of other believers when we're together. What does that look like? Today I want to look like, well, what, is that, what, is that, what happens when we scatter out? Because that's, that's the rhythm of God's people. We come together. Uh, he reminds us that we're filled. And then he sends us back out. Because there are people all around us all the time who don't, they don't know who God is and they don't know who they are. And so... What is that supposed to look like for us? And in Luke chapter 10, Jesus uh, has an encounter with, with someone who is kind of uh, is asking a different question and he gets a different kind of answer. 
and we're going to just kind of like try to extract it. And so uh, the, the, the parable of the Good Samaritan is one that is known, it's known inside of Christianity, of course, but even outside of Christianity, the idea is very familiar to a lot of people. But uh, we're going to just take a, another look at it this morning. So let's start together in Luke chapter 10, um, starting in verse 25. It says, And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How, how do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. Jesus said to him, You've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Okay, so let's stop right there. He 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 knows the answer. He's Jesus says, Well, what's what's most important? And he offers commandment one, a holistic love of God. Commandment two, to love your neighbor as one of your own. Uh, which comes from the first commandment. So when you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, all of it, you will naturally love what He loves. Right? We see that. We see that happen in marriage all the time, where uh, a couple gets married and their interests, who are maybe very different when they were dating, the longer they're together, the more they start to share common interests. And you have uh, suddenly you have husbands who are a little more invested in certain TV shows than they maybe would have been before, uh, for example, or people taking on different hobbies or whatever it might be that, that when you love someone, you start to love what they love, even if it's not something that you really care that much about. You, um, you just have a way of connecting in that way, and that's you know part of it. And so God says, that's going to happen with you. The more you love me, the more you'll love what I love. And I love those made in my image. But it says in that, that last verse that he wanted to justify himself. So he wanted to be more specific. Like, can you narrow down who my neighbor is? And he's, he's trying to get down to figure out what's the bare minimum of love that I can offer to others and still, it still count, you know? Um, and I remember uh, in college hearing this a lot, that the difference between a, a freshman in college and a senior in college is that a freshman gets the syllabus and looks, and they, they're looking and seeing, how many, how many days can I skip? And a senior gets a syllabus and is looking and saying, how many days do I absolutely have to show up? Little, little light giggle over here, so I guess maybe it's still true. Because when you're a senior, you're like, what's the bare minimum I have to do to get out of this class? That's what this guy is doing. What's the bare minimum I have to do? Who is my neighbor so I know exactly who I have to love and who I don't have to love? This is a question that is a pathway to exclusion. And so Jesus uh, could have rebuked him, could have laughed in his face, could have walked away. But Jesus, being awesome, decides to tell a story. And he's a fantastic storyteller. Uh, So look at verse 30. Jesus replied... A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Okay, so as we go through the story, I'm going to hit pause a couple of times. Um, this scenario he describes it would have been very common in in Jewish life. Uh, traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho would have been fairly normal, and it was quite dangerous because you were traveling by foot, sometimes alone, or maybe just your family. Maybe if you were lucky, a group of people would travel together. Um, but there were thieves along the way who would hide and then wait for you to come along and jump out and rob you and beat you and all this kind of stuff. So this is a scenario that would have resonated with this Jewish audience. Um, verse 31. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, Passed by on the other side. Okay, hit pause real quick. So in their culture, to this audience that's listening to this story, priests were, they were, they were held to, and they were highly revered. They were the best, they were the best people. They were the best Jews. They were the most faithful, most like closest to God, all that kind of stuff. So of anyone in their in the Jewish community who is most likely to stop and render aid, it would be the priest. And then, the, when the priest passes by, the next person that comes is a Levite, and Levites were assistants to the priests, so they were also held very very high and considered, of course, the most likely to stop and render aid. And so, in this story, Jesus lays out a common scenario that they've either experienced or they're afraid of experiencing. And says, and then your most your most pious person sees sees the wounded man walks by on the other side of the road. Then the next person in line, in terms of uh, awesomeness, also says, "No, I'm going to keep going." Now a fourth character enters the story. Verse thirty three, a Samaritan. As he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring oil, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. When I come back. So this fourth character, a Samaritan, you might know this about Samaritans. They were, uh, they were considered worse than dogs by those in the Jewish community. So, um, to a first century Jewish person, you had, you had, there were Jews and then there was everybody else which they would call a Gentile. If you weren't a Jew, you were a Gentile. So you're in the everybody else category. And there was a hierarchy in their their minds. Jews were the chosen people of God. They were essentially just better than everyone else. That this, um, this special relationship to God that should have produced humility actually produced arrogance because that's what broken people do. We become prideful. And so, uh, it was in their world, it was the Jews are up here, everyone else, the Gentiles are down here. The Samaritans were in a unique situation because in Samaria, what had largely happened is people who were Jewish 
married people who were Gentiles and started families. And to the Jew, that was the most like that was the most horrible thing they could think of. It's bad enough to be a Gentile, but for a Jew to abandon his people and marry a Gentile and start a family, put them below not only the Gentiles, but below the dogs of the Gentiles. They hated them. They absolutely hated them. And so Jesus, in in trying to answer this question, who is my neighbor, he creates a scenario about a wounded man, and the hero of the story is... Worse than the dogs of the Gentiles. He does this, of course, on purpose. See, what I just described to you is essentially a, uh, it is like the equivalent of what we know to be racism. And so the point of the Good Samaritan story, the primary point is Stop being a racist. That's what the Good Samaritan story is about. I don't know if that's what you learned in Sunday school. That's not what I learned in Sunday school. But that's the point of the story. Is Jesus is he's come and he's bring the bring the bring the kingdom of God near to Jews and to Gentiles, and he's bringing the kingdom message through the Jewish community who had gotten so wrapped up in this arrogance about their own heritage that they had essentially become racist and thought they were better than everyone else and did not want to include anyone who wasn't Jewish. If you know the unfolding of the New Testament story, that's a big that's a big battle that goes on. That's a lot of why people pressed against Christianity was because it was open to everyone and people didn't like that. And so the the primary point of the Good Samaritan story is that stop being a racist. And if that is what you need to grab onto from the story today, I compel you, please grab onto that. Like we this ha, this has to this has to leave us. Like we cannot be we cannot be followers of Christ and be racist. It doesn't they they contradict each other. And Jesus won't put up with it. And that's why he's like so clear about it here. Now, now you have to hear the story though with, with like through the like from a Jewish perspective in order to pick up on that. That's why most of us didn't learn that part of it in Sunday school. This was about kindness and compassion, which is a secondary part of the story, which is what I'm going to talk about. But I don't want to skip over the primary thing that Jesus intentionally makes a Samaritan the hero of the story to make a point. You know who your neighbor is? The Samaritan. That's why he says in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer, look at his answer. The one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the Samaritan. He couldn't even bring himself to admit the fact that the Samaritan was the hero of the story. He had to call him the one who showed him mercy. But Jesus said, you go and you do likewise. So Jesus is is telling them that the kingdom of God coming near is going to shift some things for you. And if you truly want to walk 
in God's will, you will pay attention to this. And you will recognize that your neighbor is anyone that you are close to. Like, not only relationally close to you, like in physical proximity. It doesn't matter what what this wounded, it doesn't matter, matter who the wounded person is. They're male or female, it doesn't matter where they're from, what their skin color looks like, none of those things matter. Because you love God, commandment one, that leads to loving people, commandment two, everyone made in his image, which would be every person that's ever lived in the history of the world. So as you go about your life, there's not a single person that you come across who's an exception to what you're called to in terms of loving your neighbor as one of your own. And this, this was, in some, for some, a parting of the ways with Jesus' message. And with the message of the apostles and of Paul and Peter. And this led, this led to all kinds of problems. And even to this day, there are people who just can't get on board with this for some reason. Which is why we need God to keep working miraculous things among us in this part of life. So that's the primary thing. Let me get to the secondary thing. Secondary thing is that Jesus is showing us what commandment two looks like in real life. This is, this is what it looks like. That this, this is what loving God, this is what that transformation leads to. Is he brings you from being the kind of person who's, who sees a need and just passes by on the other side. From being that kind of person into the kind of person who sees a need and does what they need to do to meet it. It's, it's a picture of transformation. It's what devoting yourself to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship and the breaking of bread and prayer. It's what those things are forming in us. Which means that the longer you walk with the Lord, the more you should be being shaped through this parable from being someone who is more like the priest into being more like the Samaritan. Little by little by little by little. And so for us, if we are, if we're looking at this and we're saying, okay, um, he's unified us in Christ. We've, uh, we've devoted ourselves to the things that Jesus taught the disciples to devote themselves to. And they taught the New Testament church and that's been passed along. We're devoting ourselves to the same, the same things, the same, uh, practices, the same beliefs, the same spiritual formation in us. How, how can we, how can we like, accelerate this process of of God bringing us and, and forming us more and more and more into the kind of people who who engage others how can we like expedite that I don't think any of us wants to have to wait decades and decades and decades before this is who we are like we want to like let's get to it and I think that Jesus is absolutely on board with this there are some parts of our maturity that just they just take time and patience and all that. I feel like this is one that could be like a little bit quicker because I've experienced it and I've watched others like very quickly become like good Samaritan kind of folks. And so if I if I could just basically pull two big ideas out of the story to help us like conceptually know how to pray and what to pursue, um, I like to do that in in the next couple of minutes. The first one would be, we have to pay attention. 
It's very simple. We have to pay attention. If you look back in verse 33, look at, look at the first thing it tells us that the Samaritan does. It says, A Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, that's the first thing he does. So this dude is just living his life on his journey, going about his day, and he, he saw the man. That was the first thing. And the reason I say that's like like it was worthy of its own point is because of how hard this is for us in modern day life. Because we tend to be pretty fast paced, right? We have our to-do list for that day, the things we're trying to accomplish, the places we need to be, the boxes that we need to check. Uh, we're just trying to get through the day so we get go home, go to bed. We're trying to get through our week so we can get to the weekend. And hopefully the weekend has some like fun things in it. And then you start over again. You know? And because of the, the pace of our lives and because of the uh, like our addiction to our phones and our schedules and our like how packed in we tend to live, it's very easy for us to just put our head down and just barrel through life and not pay attention to the people around us. You think about the, I don't know if you still go to grocery stores anymore. I know that COVID has changed a lot of rhythms for people, but if ever you're in line at a grocery store, uh, watch how much engagement is happening between the people, like the people in line with one another, and then how much they're engaging the cashier in fact, now there's like you don't even have to deal with cashiers a lot, a lot of the time. You just like scan it yourself, which is I love personally. But um, just look at how little engagement there is anymore because we're if we're if it's as soon as we're like oh this is a line the phone comes out and we're trying we you know engaging other people in other ways what we think. But you're surrounded by people in those moments. You're. As you go about your daily life and routine, it, it could seem like just another day at work, you know, just another day of getting kids in the carpool lane, you know, just another day of t-ball practice, just another, you know, another Tuesday, another Wednesday. But within those Tuesdays and those Wednesdays, as we go down our own path throughout our day, there's just people all along those pathways. And I think it's very important that we see people, that we pay attention to them. And when I say see them, I, I don't know that that only means like like visually see them. I I think it has to a lot to do with with other things as well, like listening. You can be sitting next to another parent at t-ball practice, and you could just be talking about whatever, just lobbing conversation back and forth about nothing. But if you're if you're listening, you start to listen listen to tone, listen to some of the things that they're saying, or even better, look them in the eye. Oof. Look them in the eye, because people can hide a lot of things, but you know what they don't hide very well? Their eyes. Like you can read how someone's really doing, and the eyes combined with tone, they can say whatever they want in words. God can help us to really get in there and know what's going on with someone if we'll just pay attention to them. 
So I think a part of the challenge for us is is like having a desire to do this, like a heart a heart to live this way, and asking God, like, would will you would you help me to have your eyes and your ears as I engage people today? Help me to look them in the eye. Help me to listen to what they're saying, their words and their tone. Help me like be attentive to the people around me and not just trying to get through a conversation or through the next task. Just help me slow down. Second thing, once you're paying attention, you start to notice things, then you have a choice to make. Because in the story, it says that the priest saw the man, made a choice. Levite saw the man, made a choice. Samaritan saw the man, made a choice. So they all saw him. Then you have to figure out, okay, what do I do with what I've seen? If you're, if you're asking God to help you listen and see, then it's like, now you have to be like, okay, now that God's showing me things, what do I, what do I do? Look again at the, at the story. In verse 33, the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. When he saw him, he had compassion. So what he saw evoked something in him. When we are paying attention to people and we're listening, it will evoke things in us. If they are hurting, it should evoke compassion. That, that makes sense. And some of the people that are around us, some of them are hurting big time, and they aren't even trying to hide it. Like, you'll start, like, when you, when you pray this way and you ask God to open your eyes and give his, you'll start to notice, like, man, there's a lot of people crying around me. There's a lot of people who are, are visibly distressed. Like, they, they're carrying their pain in a way that you can tell. Now there's also people who are experts at keeping that buttoned up. And they think they're experts. It'll come out. But some, they just kind of put on that happy face and they just sort of say whatever and act like everything's all good, like they have it all together. And on the inside, they're crumbling. But for those who are hurting, however you pick up on it, compassion should be evoked. This is... This is great, but other things can also be evoked as we're really paying attention to other people. Um, God will, will, he will stir you in a way. And a part of what that is, like with compassion, like he's like, he sees the wounded man and can assess the needs right away. It's a little bit different when someone's trying to hide it from you, trying to figure out what, what do you need? But what God stirs in you then leads leads to action. And if we look at the Samaritan story, look at 34, just to remind us of... He went to him and he bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. So he tended to those immediate things. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. Like that, that's what that's what this man needed. This needed. He needed someone to tend to the wounds and to take him somewhere where he could be safe and he could like rest and heal. As we're engaging people, there's all kinds of different things that they might need in, in those moments. As you're paying attention to them, what's evoked in you, it could be this general sense of like, you know, all they really need is, is someone to smile at them. Like, 
that might be what your next Walmart cashier really needs is just a smile from someone. Like someone to be kind. How simple, how simple is that? It's weird to think that a smiling, like kind person could be a game changer for you or bring light into your day, but we've all probably been there at times when like, man, someone was just nice to me and I, for some reason it meant the world. I don't even know why. They could need a smile. They could need, uh, they could need truth. Like in that conversation, it, it could just become so clear of like they're believing some absolute garbage about themselves or about, or about God or about the world or about their spouse or about their kids or about whatever it is. And it could be that your response is to bring truth to them in a way that is kind, but is direct, you know, that could be what God stirs within you. It could be that what they need in that moment is someone who'll just listen to them. Someone who'll be slow to speak and quick to listen, like James tells us. Someone who's just not, not waiting for them to, to like slow up in their sentence so that you can jump in and say something else, you know? Someone who's not waiting to one up their story with your own story. Uh, someone who's not trying to find how do I make this about me in some inadvertent way. Just someone who will just like, Tell me more. And when they get, and when they like get to a point in the sentence and they're trying to think of what's next, you just wait. You don't try to finish it for them. You don't try to offer advice. You're just listening. That might be what they need in that moment. They might need someone who will just sit with them. They might not even want to talk about stuff. They just want presence. You know. People get weird or uh, in in terms of like grief and sadness and like how do I don't, I don't know what to say I'm not sure uh, how can I support someone when they're feeling you know when they've lost someone that kind of stuff and um, that's one of the women's worship gathering like breakouts would be on grief and that kind of stuff but let me just tell you what I what I've learned is that they really just want you to show up like they really just want you to come to the wake to come to the funeral. And to get into the line and to go up there and just to hug them and tell them, like, tell them, like, maybe told that you love them and that you're sorry. It's, it's simple, you know. Just presence. They might just need someone to be with them. Their needs could be, could be physical. They could need a meal. They could need a bottle of water. They could need a tank of gas, you know. They could need a hug. They could need the gospel to be presented to them. Like they could need someone to walk them through. Like this is this is who Jesus is and what he's come to do for you. They could need an invitation to church, you know. When's the last time you invited someone? Hey, you don't go to church, you should come with me. They could need an invitation to community group. You know, they could they you know, See what I'm saying? Like, the Good Samaritan story is not like, let's be sure to look for the people who are beat up on the side of the road. It's not the point. The secondary point of this is like, we all travel the roads of our lives every single day. And there are people all throughout those roads who have needs. Some of them are very easy to meet. And some maybe would will require a little bit more. But you know what? You know what Jesus doesn't tell us in the parable? He doesn't tell us the logic behind the, the priest and the Levite or the Samaritan. But what we can assume, and see that's part of his brilliant storytelling, is that it allows us to identify with them. 
he had told us exactly what went through their minds that only people who have experienced that would identify with it. But now we can sit in a community group and we can say, let's make a list of all the reasons why the priest didn't stop. And there would be a huge long list. But we do know if we can take a global perspective, they saw him and they made a choice. So somewhere in there they counted the cost of helping him and they decided it wasn't worth it. And the Samaritan also made a choice, also counted the cost, and the compassion that, w- that it was evoked in him is what drove him to act. And so for us, we're, we're counting the cost of responding to what our paying attention has shown to us. And we have to believe that God will equip us in those moments for what we need. That he will not lead you into destruction. He will also not, he will not lead you into a situation where you're, um, where you're, where he will not supply what you need in those moments. And so even if it's intimidating, there's a beauty in stepping into it. And who knows if this Samaritan, if he knew how to dress wounds, who knew, we don't know that at all. You may not necessarily feel like you know what to say in every situation ever, but what beautiful faith it is to say, God, I know you have connected me with this person. Our paths have crossed today on purpose. I've been paying attention because you have helped me, and this is what you're showing me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go there. It's a beautiful thing. I know I said I was going to give you two things. Let me give you a third one, just as a bonus. Look at, look at the last verse in the, in the parable. 35. The next day, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. He said, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Now, every situation you won't be able to do this, but let's not underestimate the power of follow-up with one another. In situations where... Let's go back to T-ball. Let's pretend that you're a T-ball parent and you're sitting there at T-ball practice and you're conversing with another parent and God has helped you pay attention and God has, has, has like they begin to share something and you begin to ask good questions. It ends up in a dialogue about some situation and you leave the situation. You have encouraged them. You have spoken truth to them. And you have said, I will be praying uh, about that situation. Next Tuesday rolls around. You sit next to them. Think about the power of follow-up in that moment versus the uh, opposite effect if you never bring it up again. There's a ton of power. And you're like, hey, so I've, we talked last week about, you know, I've, I've been praying for that. I really, I really have. Is there any update? Is there any change? What does, that, what does that tell the person? It tells them that they are important to you. And that you are listening to them. And that you really believe that God has something in that situation. That God's involvement in that situation is important enough to pray about it. We don't do that because we're like, well, this is a good Christian thing to do or whatever it is. It's like, no, we're, we're trying to make sure, like, do you know that you're the beloved of God? Do you know that God cares about that thing that you're going through? Because you're his son, you're his daughter. Do you know how important you are? Not only to me, but to him. Which is way more important than being valuable to me. 
In those in the in follow up, think about what a blessing it is to you when someone says, "I have been praying about this." Is there an update? It reinforce it reinforces something. There's a connection that's there. And so paying attention and then responding to the need and then following up whenever you can. Think about think about the rhythm of that. If if every Christian lived that way between worship services or between community groups or whatever it may be, if that's how every Christian walked the roads of life all around the world, then there'd be a ton of life change. I think we would see people like filling up churches and we would see us filling up the baptistry a lot. Like this would be happening more and more and more. If you go to the other end of the spectrum, if no Christians ever do this, then do we even really know who God is? You know. And so there, there has to be this conviction among us. Not Again, not conviction like you did something wrong. Conviction like, I believe this. That this is what God is doing among us. That this is the plan of God for his people. Is to take us from being the priest and Levite in the story and make us into the Samaritan more and more and more and more. And that means we come before him and we say, God, I love you and I, I, I want to love what you love in a way that I've never loved what you loved before. I want to be all about people. So will you help me pay attention? Will you empower me in my response? Will you help me to be so serious about this that I'm able to follow up? But all of that has to be about like letting people know they're the beloved of God. That's what we are entrusted with, this incredible Beautiful gift to take the kingdom close in these ways. And you know, all of this is, it's just a shadow of what Jesus has done for us. Like, isn't this what John 3.16 conveys? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. That God saw us in our perishing state and said, I will not stand by for this. You're too important. So he came to the earth and sacrificed his own life so that we could live forever with him and with each other. Like God was paying attention. God responded to the need. And he follows up all the time. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. This is just a shadow of the gospel that we are blessed and kept by. And so what we are bringing to people, it's, it's just consistent with the character and the mission of God. So this is nothing new. I've probably not said a single thing today that you're like, I've never heard that before. But if I have, like if you've never heard that you're the beloved of God, if you've never, if you've never had that, that point where you realize who, who he is and who you are to him, you've never given your life to him, then you don't need to leave here this morning Wondering that or questioning that. It's an incredible, we serve an incredible God. And so he's inviting us into this morphing process where he's like, hey, let me, let me teach you to be like me. Let me, let me, let me transform your life and bring you from being this to being this. And we just need to keep saying yes to it in every form that we possibly can. And so I hope this is an encouragement to you this morning. It has been an encouragement to me to just uh, to be reminded once again of uh, 
just the, the beauty of what God has called us into and the fact that he has filled us and empowered us to go and to do it. And so we're going to respond like we normally do uh, around here, our, our new, our COVID normal, which is to sing. Uh, we used to do some other kind of responses, and we'll get back to that as soon as we're able. But uh, we're going to sing and let God just uh, speak even more to what he's been speaking through his word. So let's stand together as our musicians come back. Lord, we come to you and uh, I feel pretty confident that none of us in the room reads that story and our hope is to uh, is to be like the priest or the Levite. But we live in a world that's constantly whispering to us that we don't have time to stop and help people. That we're not equipped for it, that we probably do more harm than good that our schedules are too important, that, I mean, just the list goes on and on and on. And God, we, on our, on our own, we will, we'll always default to looking out for ourselves and our own like self-preservation. But in your hands and as you transform us, you're, you're making us more and more into people who just naturally choose to pay attention and naturally respond. People who just naturally listen deeply and I'm thankful for the transformation that's already happened and for the transformation that is to come. So we thank you for the unity that you have given us. We thank, are thankful for the ways you use the scriptures and prayer and our community with each other in this formation process. And I pray that whatever it is we're supposed to grab onto from today and pull into our own lives, however this changes the way that we pray or approach our days or look around as we go through the rhythms of life. Would you keep forming us and shaping us more and more into your image? we could continue to bring Christ near to those around us. We love you and we pray this all in your name. Amen. Let's sing together.